You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week we're going back to 1987, the year of Withnail, Real Men, and I. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I'm blind drunk. And I am Adam Thomas, and I will take the good package. Yes. Yes, you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but welcome everybody to Double Edge Double Bill. Every week we talk about two movies we choose at the end of our previous episode. Um, one is a good movie, one is a bad movie in theory. And um, we do it based around the topic. And the topic for this week uh, was chosen by our patrons, patreon.com slash dedbpod. Stay tuned to the end of the show where we'll talk a bit more about that. But uh, they all chose between two 80s years. And uh, it was between 1984, which is a more traditional sort of 80s year for people to kind of go back to, and then 1987, which was an interesting choice. Uh, but uh, Adam, are you a fan of uh, this uh, tubular time of the 1980s, and particularly 87? I mean, yeah, for sure, dude. You got to figure. I was, you know, five years old in 87, and, you know, that's when you really start remembering things you see and movies you see and sort of start leaving an impression on you so this was like kind of my year 87 through 89 is like when i really sort of form you know tastes and opinions on film which not necessarily all have carried over but still you start to recognize actors you start to remember things you can quote things you can everything like that so yeah this was a huge huge year for me i mean it was a huge one for me too i was uh, like negative five years old a lot of things happen when you're negative five yeah yeah thanks thank you (laughs) uh but no no even then like despite being born in the 90s a lot of my favorite films are from the the 80s in general and i'm not saying that just in the obnoxious like the 80s were the best kind of way man and nor am i saying that about the 90s any specific decade but at the same time a lot of fun movies came out especially even in 87 i feel like is underrated year in terms of uh sort of the 80s because i think the big ones like we mentioned 84 tends to be a big one and then also 1982 i'm um, even 89 just for like the big blockbuster implications that happened with that if uh, you haven't listened to the show before in terms of years usually every year we do like two episodes about the year we're currently in we're in the middle we'll talk about a couple movies that have come out this year and then at the end we'll do the same for a couple movies that came out mm-hmm. but we've only ever done this where we go back to a past year once before with 1999 which, tremendous year, obviously, a lot of great things. But we haven't done that in a while, and I hope to do more of these, because I like going back to specific years and kind of just getting a look at the year based on two random movies, like we did here. No, I definitely agree. And, I mean, we've covered a couple movies from this year already on the show. But there are some, I mean, some of my favorite all-time films come from this year. Yes, uh, specifically, I should list movies we've talked about from this year include Plane Strings and Automobiles, Prince of Darkness, The Running Man, 
Monster Squad, uh, From a Whisper to a Scream, Masters of the Universe, and one of our favorite bad movies we've ever talked about on the show, Miami Connection. Yes. So again, just with that, what you named alone that we've covered, and that's not even counting some of the masterpieces that were released, it's a hell of a year, dude. Yeah, just to give you an interesting perspective, I have some stats here in our notes, Adam. Some stats about uh, the big movies of the year. Um, first of all, first off... Ju- Wait a minute. You write notes for this show? I know, Adam. You know how in your inbox, that thing you put to spam? That, that's my notes. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not going to change that. I mean, I mean, you you put that you know it's right there next to all those like great things where it says like Adam, I think I really appreciate you as a podcast host and collaborator. All those other like really sweet emails I sent you, they're all in the spam folder for Adam. Yeah, no, right. I actually I print them all out and use them as toilet paper. <laughs> well, at least you care that much. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Um, but here, just for example, big Oscar wins this year were um, Best Picture and Best Director went to The Last Emperor. Um, Best Actor went to Michael Douglas for Wall Street. Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress went to Moonstruck for Cher for Best Actress and Olympia Dukakis for Supporting Actress. And Best Supporting Actor went to a subject previously of our show, the late great Sean Connery for The Untouchables. So that's a, already a weird group in the movies right there. Yeah, it's the Chicago way. I'm from Chicago. Oscar, give it. Give it to him. Give it the Oscar. <laughs> Throw it in his fucking face. <laughs> Do it. Um, and then here are the top five grossing movies of the year. You got number five, Moonstruck, $80 million. You got Good Morning Vietnam, $123 million. Beverly Hills Cop 2, $153 million. Fatal Attraction, 156 and $167 million. Three Men and a Baby. That's fucking crazy. And I remember Three Men and a Baby, even from when I was a kid, because my father tried to convince me that there was that ghost child in the movie. <laughs> right, yes. Where it's, you know, it's just a Ted Danson stand-up, but it scared the shit out of me. Because VHS quality, you cannot tell that it's Ted Danson. And it was terrifying. Yeah, it's a kind of Ted Danson. The terrifying vision of director Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Three Men and a Baby, but I just love that stat that made that much fucking money in 1987. It was the big movie. <laughs> Huge hit. And there's quite a big drop-off between number four and five. That's true, but even then, Moonstruck being one of the big movies of the year, even making $80 million, that's unheard of now. That Like, oh, a cute romantic comedy <laughs> made that much money. It's so good. Such a great fucking movie. It was my alternate choice for the show. We almost yeah. did that. That year brought me... Uh, probably my two favorite Nicolas Cage performances, Moonstruck and Raising Arizona. Oh, of course, yes. There'll be plenty of time to talk about other movies that are released this year, but we're talking about two specific ones, Adam, That which is the end of our last episode. We have My Good Pick, which is a movie called With Nail and I, and then we have Your Bad Pick, which is a movie called Real Men. So of all the big movies we could have covered in either of these categories, we went with two that most people probably haven't heard of. That's the double-edged double-bill way. I mean, to the point to where I had never heard of The Good Choice, and you had never heard of The Bad Choice. No, and even then, I hadn't seen The Good Choice, because I just heard about it, but never seen it. Um, so why don't we go ahead and jump into that Good Choice right away with With Nail and I. You are cordially invited to spend a carefree weekend in the English countryside. Bask in the warm sunshine. We've gone on holiday by mistake. Enjoy the rustic pleasure of country living. It's gonna be so cold in here. 
It's like Greenland in here. Wants to get down there and have sex with those cows. Partake of fine varietal wine. Oh, drunk. I assure you I'm not, officer. I've only had a few ales. Take lunch at a charming pub. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Fish in the region's streams. Don't threaten me with a dead fish. Withnil and I, a trip worth taking. What absolute twaddle. So, uh, With Neil and Ed came out March 27, 1987, from director-writer Bruce Robinson, um, and is a British film where the basic premise is we follow two uh, people, the titular characters of With Nail, who's played by Richard E. Grant, and I, who was never really named in the movie, um, in the script, he's called Marwood, they sometimes reference him as that, uh, but played by Paul McGann, who live in actually the late 60s, 1969, they are two out-of-work actors in Britain, who um, are drinking themselves away, particularly with nails going really hardcore on the drinking. And they decide, fuck it, we gotta get out of here. Let's go out to the country to with nails uncle's house, uh, played by uh, Richard Griffith's Uncle Monty. And uh, yeah, it's a little um, dark comedy from Britain. And I'd heard about this a lot, mainly because, one, I love Richard E. Grant, and this was the movie that really made him pop. It's his film debut, and I'd heard tremendous things about his performance. But uh, also, it's gotten a lot of praise as, like, a Criterion release, and I've, um, and it kind of had the vibes I'd heard a lot about of, like, a Hunter S. Thompson kind of journey, a sort of uh, stream of consciousness, uh, in this case, alcohol-addled affair, Um, and I was curious to see it, um, and I finally have for the show, and I will say, I like With Nail and I, but the sort of praise around it, especially being, like, oh, one of the great British films of all time... I'm not sure if I quite agree with that at the same time. I think there's a lot of things that I think are interesting about it. But at the same time, there's also a lot of things that firmly put in 1987 in ways that kind of disappoint me. I think there'll be a big thing with both the movies we talk about is that they are very of their time and era. But Adam, I'm curious to hear from you because you hadn't even heard of this movie at all. So what did you think of it? Well, uh, I'm going to preface it by saying it took me three separate viewings to get through it. Not necessarily because I was bored, which, uh, yes, I was, but I also, you know, extenuating circumstances and, you know, life as they say was rolling. I don't know. I don't know if I like this or not. And that's 100% honest. I do think Richard Grant is super enigmatic and fun to watch in this. He looks like a goddamn skeleton wearing a flesh suit, but he's, he's really fun in it. Uh, my favorite part of it is basically... You can't tell me. All right. With Ralph Brown's character as the drug dealer. Yes. Right. You cannot tell me Mike Myers did not see this movie and be like, oh, no, I want this character, this exact character to be in Wayne's World, too. And he's going to look the same, talk the same, act the same, everything. I'm watching. I'm like, oh, that's Del Preston. A hundred percent. So that right away, I'm like, oh, this is awesome because I love that character. And it's just. I find the whole movie to be sort of drab and a little bit boring. And I say that kind of thinking that that might have been what they were going for as well. No, yeah, I I 100% think that's the case, even the aesthetic of it. It's very grimy because the whole thing is there are these out-of-work actors, and I love the look of this movie because it really emphasizes on the grime. You really feel like you're in the middle of 
like this environment living with these out of work actors who don't have much to do so they just fuck up their entire apartment like even early on there's a scene where like they try and get something out of the sink and it's covered in dishes and dirty and terrible and they're like oh god something's living in it we have to like stab something or something like that. there's a lot of like i think fun admittedly very british humor that comes from like um richard e grant and paul mcgann kind of bouncing off of each other and i think honestly the movie is really strong for at least the first two thirds of it because of their chemistry i think richard e grant could have obviously just been by himself the whole time but you kind of need someone to be the leash i think mcgann is serviceable as that kind of lead uh, but at the same time, I do have the problem where whenever we have McGann in his scenes on his own, um, or particularly one scene where he shares with the Uncle Monty character, yeah. um, I found him to be a lot less interesting. And most of his character traits that they kind of gave him are the more outdated elements of the film. Yeah, and I really was not a fan of the voiceover monologue. Right, which you you had said you you tried watching like the first bit of this and you complained about the voiceover thing. I don't think it's as constant an issue necessarily as you feared it would be because it's just kind of like connective tissue at certain points. Well, but here's and and I think that's my problem with it. It is in no way a constant thing. It just happens in random parts. Okay, like it's not a th- if it was a thorough line to where you know and I or whatever you want to call him was sort of narrating his whole journey through this and sort of his ultimate story, then I don't think I would really have that much problem with it. It's just, it comes off so sporadic and, you know, sometimes there'll be a single word almost, or just a random sentence that he says. And, and then that's it. And it's it just, it, to me, it's completely unnecessary. I would have, I think more issue with it if it was more constant, because the few times we do get it, it feels like it is just sort of a transitional thing. And I'm fine with that based on the, narration isn't that interesting to me i don't get much interiority out of him and if it was throughout the whole movie i would have more problem with it i think just because we're getting interiority out of a character who isn't really saying much of anything interesting it's just kind of weaving together some of these set pieces or these certain scenes between characters which i'm a bit more fine with like if they tried to make him sort of like the narrator in the way that like hunter s thompson is in fear and loathing but the difference being he doesn't have hunter s thompson style like weird crazy ramblings he's just kind of this asshole who i don't care about i would have way more of a problem with this movie if it was that constant honestly i mean yeah that might be true i guess i can't disagree with you on that it's just the fact of the matter is i kind of found him just not only an unlikable character but I think you already said it best, where if it was just Richard E. Grant, it'd be maybe better. Uh, he's just ultimately an unlikable and forgettable and boring character to sort of follow. I don't know if we would have Richard E. Grant as own. I think that might get a bit toiling as well. I think the weird thing is we haven't talked much about the Uncle Monty character, which is uh, he's played by yeah. Richard Griffiths, who uh, people would know. Harry Potter. Has Harry Potter. Yeah, Uncle Vernon. There's no post on Sundays. That guy. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a very good performance of a character who I'm not sure what they want to go with for him. Where I think there are certain moments where I think that character is so engaging and interesting. Like there's a whole, because like whenever they first introduce him at his parlor and they comment that he's a raving homosexual, which I mean, initially I'm just like, okay, this is just kind of homophobia of the time that I don't agree with. And it's a bummer that it's here, but at least it's kind of fleeting. And more importantly, Richard Griffiths, is delivering a very fun performance of this guy who feels like uh, a sort of dandy character of a different time 
that's in the late 60s mm-hmm. and kind of like is lost to time in a way I think is fun particularly whenever his cat shows up it's like that damn cat I can't stand him <laughs> look at him gallivanting around I think he's really fun in scenes like that or there's a great dinner sequence where they're kind of talking about where it's like oh we're three people on an island and the world is com- just full of awful people around us but we're we're here and we're so lovely together you get a bit of that sadness and that um, sort of like lost to time element for all three of these characters. Then as the movie goes along, I think they uh, will talk about it. But how, how did you feel in general, especially when you were introduced to that character? I think he almost steals the movie um, as far as performance. He's he's so good and he's just, you kind of get the erudite sort of pretentious vibe off him right away. I, I really enjoyed the character. I really enjoyed him in in the performance. I, I thought he was really good. No, I, I really liked him. I thought he was. I thought he was fine. I thought he was uh, sort of one of the more interesting characters in the movie. Ultimately, what, what happens much, uh, but no, I, I I really did enjoy him quite a bit. Yeah, I love the scene also where he gets back into the cabin. And they think it's that one guy who might be killing them, and they're working yeah. the bit together. Yeah. Just like, oh, he's coming to kill us. Oh, he's breaking the window. Oh no, what's going to happen? And then just Mr. Griffiths just pops in like, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know where you both were. I just had to get in, I lost my key. And stuff like that. It's it's a lot of fun when especially I think the best sequences of the movie are when like the three of them are together in the cabin. And even then, like yes. I think when they initially go to the cabin just uh, with Nail and I, I think there's a lot of fun stuff with like they don't know how to get firewood and they're just like freezing up and they're just like, Oh, what are we gonna do? Oh, let's kill this <laughs> like they get a chicken from that one farmer guy yep. and they kill him and just like, Oh, let's place him on the stone that's in the middle of the oven <laughs> or put our shoes in the oven. Yep. Like that. There's a lot of fun there. There's a lot of like very like I said dark british charm to it yeah they try to cook the chicken in the teapot <laughs> and the kid well but it take his legs off and they, you know they pull it out there's it's still got feathers all over it basically and yes. shit too like these guys just don't know what they're doing <laughs> no. i know i agree there is a lot of fun to this movie it's just it's told and you know and it is a thing with british humor that in british movies in general where it's told in such a dry way mm-hmm. and i i, I mean I'll be 100% honest, I've never been a fan of sort of British comedy. I, I like some of them, but it's never been my real sort of cup of tea like I know it is for a lot of people. I do. British humor isn't your cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, hey <laughs> But um, it's, it, this was a very hard watch for me. Yeah, I don't think we ever talked about this, but like I grew up as like a big fan of not this specific era of British comedy, but like Monty Python was a huge thing for me when I was in high sure. school. I was I, I, I like that kind of a dry British wit. And I think it especially comes off in some of the more absurd sequences that happen here. Like there's a bit when they get some money from Uncle Monty. He's like, go buy yourself some shoes because they've been using paper bags, which is also great <laughs> when they're trying to walk around outside and shit like that because they don't have boots. And he's just like, oh, fuck it. We're not going to go get that we're gonna go like get a drink and they go over to this like really nice little like brunch den of sorts and they're just like oh excuse me everyone we want the finest blinds possible and we want them delivered here even though like everyone's trying to get them the fuck out of the place i thought that scene that's almost one of the better scenes where like mcgann is playing off of grant in a pretty fun way they're both uh-huh. together um there's so much fun stuff there i do think they have pretty good chemistry paul mcgann and richard grant i i yeah. like i said richard grant is it just he's fantastic this movie and i've always you know paul mcgann is definitely one of those character actors where you've seen him in a hundred things yeah but you're like who what's his name like i i i never know his name 
even amongst like there's a sad thing amongst like sort of cult audiences where he's a doctor who but from a tv movie that failed to like sort of launch in like a state-to-state thing with the u.s and that's the only big thing he's done as doctor who <laughs> he's secondly one of the uh, 13 but not a not yeah, one anyone cares about yeah but even that though even you know to get into the british thing doctor who's never been my thing yeah. Like, I remember even in high school, I have a couple friends. One of them was a good listener of the show, Elwood Tiberius, really into Doctor Who, you know. And, and it was a kind of a resurgence of sort of British cinema and television and music in high, in, even in my days in high school. Like, the Beatles were all of a sudden huge again and Doctor mm-hmm. Who and Monty Python and all. And it, just, it kind of escaped me. And then it escaped me. I just didn't give it enough attention. I was too busy, like, you know into skateboarding and things like that. So I didn't even pay attention to any of it. And I, I, to be honest, I kind of regret it because I do think there is a wealth of material there and, and there's some great stuff, you know, especially with Dr. Who I know, like my wife loves Dr. Who. And I know a lot of other people are like, Oh dude, you're missing out by not watching Dr. Who. The, the Chris Ferguson on era. I've also watched him a big, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's just, I've never given it the chance ever. And I think it's more of a self imposed maybe fear to where i don't know that i'll get it and i'll feel stupid for not getting it so i've never given myself a chance to get into it and you know and i think that jades everything like this movie and things like that for me to where it's like i can't even allow myself to get into it yeah it's interesting also this is so british literally it's produced by a beetle uh, George Harrison, for a time, made a bunch of movies with yeah. a company called Handmade Films, which started because of uh, Life of Brian, the Monty Python movie. He kind of bailed them out the last second after they lost financing. So he was producing movies at this time for a bit um, throughout the 80s and into the 90s a bit. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get that, especially because, uh, like, obviously, when I watch Monty Python and other stuff like that, oh, British humor from, like, the 70s. It's like I don't get all the cultural references necessarily. Um, they're going on there but I, I think i like the absurdity that happens and also even in moments like here where it's clear that like okay there's some cultural things I don't quite understand about like the specifics of like british politics or whatever especially at the late 60s time at the same time i do get the sort of human element of like oh these people feel very lost in the middle of a country that's changing around them that's a relatable thing no matter what country you come from and i find that pretty fascinating sure. to where like even though these people do awful things especially with nail um, and I uh, do some pretty bad things. At the very same time, I at least get the idea like these guys are outcasted, but it's not because they're brave fools. It's because, oh, they've isolated themselves completely because the world's changing around them and they can't change with it. So they've resorted to drink. And I think that especially works for the final, final scenes of the movie. But uh, so, yeah, let's uh, let's just get into this bit. And I think... Before we get into it, we want to emphasize a bit of, like, a content warning. Um, we're going to be talking about some unfortunate uh, sexual assault stuff that happens in this movie. Um, so if that is some sort of emotional trigger for you, we, we totally understand. And we would probably recommend skipping to when we talk about the other movie. Uh, though, keep in mind, that's also going to be have some issues with that, too. There's a... After a while, with the Uncle Monty character visiting, it's very clear that he has feelings for the eye character the paul mcgann's character and yes. there's a lot of implications of like uh you know gay panic humor that was very prevalent around this time which is like oh he's going to you know try and have sex with me or whatever that was kind of present at the beginning and is even more of a thing end of the second act into the third act of this movie leading up to a sequence in which 
uh, Paul McGann tries to go up to his room in the cabin, and uh, Uncle Monty follows him, and Uncle Monty tries to rape the uh, Paul McGann character. And the sequence is... I, I have so many problems with it because... There's a lot of unfortunate tragedy that's kind of built into this with Bruce Robinson apparently based a lot of this on his experiences as a young actor working with Franco Zeffirelli on The City of Romeo and Juliet and apparently was also given unwanted advances by that particular director. And I've heard some other similar things uh, about that director uh, from other younger actors from that time. And I, I get that it's sort of him kind of trying to deal with that trauma. And also they don't try and paint Uncle Monty as a full-out villain as much as sort of what they're trying to do. I don't emphasize, this is what the movie's trying to do. is trying to make him kind of a tragic figure who is, like, completely without any sort of, like, love in his life, so he's trying to force it out of the Paul McGann character. That's what they're trying to do. And I think in the yes. process, even regardless of, like, oh, a different time, different era, I think it's just really messy, and I think it's really disappointing way to especially kind of leave the Uncle Monty character at that point. Yes, I agree with you. Because um, the fact of the matter is, you know, different time, different era, uh, tragic character, however you want to sort of frame it. And, and and that's all accurate. Different time, different era, tragic character. I mean, but at the same time, it's still sexual assault. Yeah. And it's still incredibly invasive and problematic and it's almost played for laughs in yeah. a way in this movie that really turned me off. Yes. Like, I got to be honest, that was the, the main point where I completely checked out. I'm like, oh, okay. Because uh, I got what they were going for. I, I completely understand. But it was just handled very poorly. Yeah, the thing is, I was in the realm of like, oh, this is getting to be a great movie, and then the sequence happens, and it's... It's, it's a bummer. You no, know, it's, a, it's a real bummer. It's not just a thing, because like, whenever you point stuff like this out, there's always going to be the contingent of people who are like, oh my god, these woke new people, which, fuck you. Like, you or I being bummed out about a sexual assault scene in a movie that feels poorly handled... Like, it's, it's not necessarily a thing of, like, oh, completely different time, different place. What are you talking about? How, how could you be upset by that? Like, you know, it's, it's, sexual, yeah. it's right. sexual assault in a film. That especially doesn't really fit with, like, the rest of the tone of the movie at all. It comes out of nowhere. Right. It's not, right. It's not like a rape revenge movie where the sexual assault is supposed to be terrifying and, you know, disgusting. It's played for a laugh or sort of another shenanigan that happens while they're in the country. Um, and the fact of the matter is... I find it almost depressing that people like us and you or anybody even has to feel the need to defend their opinion on why they think it's wrong yeah. or problematic. Different time, whatever you want to say it, it's still sexual assault played for a laugh. It's not funny. It's never funny. It's never okay. Right, and it really paints your whole thing about the Paul, the you know, the Uncle Monty character or Paul McGann's character. Because also the entire time he's doing gay panic stuff. Yes. About it. He's just like, oh my god, he's gonna bugger me, like he says all the time. And then later on, he talks to Richard E. Grant, just like, because Uncle Monty also says, oh, I, I thought you were with Withnail. He told me that, like, you were having some sort of issue or whatever, that you had a secret affection for Withnail. I thought they were a couple. Right, I thought right. they were a couple, and he, and Withnail apparently intimated, like, oh, you're closeted and all this other stuff. And then he has a scene with 
uh, the Richard E. Grant with Neil character where he talks about, oh, you told him I was a toilet trader, I believe is the term, which was a, yeah, a, a slang yeah. for just like, yeah. oh, they like blow each other in bathroom stalls, stuff like that. And it's 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 right. such a bummer that like, especially because like, if the whole movie was dealing with something like this on a more overall thematic level, I would feel maybe. I, I would probably like it less, but I would at least be like, well, that feels at least in keeping with the tone of the movie, what it was going for. Yes. As opposed to here, it just comes off so randomly. Well, I'm saying, how many of the movies have we seen from the 60s, 70s, and 80s where there's problematic language, problematic themes throughout the whole movie, but it's the whole movie? I mean, one of my favorite movies, you know, Robocop. There are things in Robocop that you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is on screen. But it's, it's, part of the movie it's the story that's being told there's a satirical angle to it that like at least like you can see what it's going for yeah the whole movie emanates that idea and this dirty grimy feel to it and all these things where a movie like this like with Nell and i and you know even in a way our next feature where it just comes out of nowhere and you're like why do this i've always always been against shock value either humor, horror, whatever you want to call it, just shock value, where it's something that doesn't belong to the story in a whole, but they just do it to make you have a reaction. And it's cheap, and it's 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 always expletive. And this is a perfect example of that for me. To where I agree with you, I was starting to get on board with this movie, and then that happened, and I'm like, oh, I don't respect the vision of this movie now. And and that's how, honestly how I feel about it. Yeah, because even with some of that backstory stuff about Robinson and dealing with that from Franco Zeffirelli, oh. it still just feels at the same time like, oh, you're dealing with that by just turning sexual assault into this kind of like confrontational, like you mentioned, kind of the shock humor thing, while also trying to make it part of like Uncle Monty's character about how like, oh, he's so sad and desperate that he's going to try and do this to somebody. It's trying to assault somebody. Right, yeah, trying to assault somebody. It, it still doesn't like endear me that much, especially when I think the movie does a way better job after that point of making the Withnail character come off so much more of like a tragic character that I feel a bit of pity for, even though he's been like an asshole this whole time. At the very least, like once you get to the ending bit of this movie where Paul McGann leaves and they have their farewell sequence and then he does the Hamlet's soliloquy quite well to just a bunch of fucking wolves at a zoo... There's a real tragedy to that that I can feel invested. There's a there, that's an authentic way of portraying a tragedy where this guy is like an out of work actor, and you think, oh, he's just like this drunk who acts weird toward people and is a spindly sort of like asshole that drives everybody away, including the Paul McGann character. But at the same time, oh, he has a lot of talent as an actor, but he can't display it because of his own insecurities that drive him to drink. That's a phenomenal way of displaying all of that without doing a shitty sexual assault thing for a character. I completely agree. 100%. You said very much more eloquently than I could have exactly what I'm thinking. Yes, 100%. I agree with you. Obviously, both of us historically on this show and historically in our private conversations have huge problems with racism and sexual assault and all all that stuff. When things like that are used to purposely sort of provoke especially in, in movies like this where it has really 
especially with the uncle character, no reason to be there to begin with. Or, or even like with whatever thing they're trying to go for that tries to like give you a shade of the character. It's still like, oh, this is a poor way of doing that. Regardless of the problematic yes. content of it, it's still just a very weird story choice that doesn't fit. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It could have been done in so many different ways. And yet that's what they decided on. And to me, it, it not only feels... How do I put this? It's offensive, but it's offensive to me as somebody who doesn't appreciate that humor and who is offended by things like that. But it also feels like it's a novice way to sort of get a chuckle out of somebody. And I I think it's lazy. I I think overall the the problem is the laziness, Uh, which is a Uh bummer because it's like I said, I think there's a lot of interesting things about this movie. I think like we mentioned, I'll I'll spin this off into final thoughts by saying I think that... I think uh, Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann have a lot of uh, nice chemistry back and forth. There's a lot of great dark British humor that's littered throughout this. And I even think, like, we didn't talk much about, like, the actual set design. Look, I can see why people, like David Fincher in particular, loves this movie. Because it has the aesthetic of, like, a... sense. Yeah, because he was a big fan and actually cast Ralph Brown and Paul McGann in Alien 3. Because of that, and wanted to have Richard E. Grant play the Charles Dance character in Alien 3. Um, but they oh, couldn't look so that sense. Yeah, which uh, I, I think that you can feel that because like it has that grimy stick, and this is way before Fincher directed movies at any point, so you can kind of see that influence. So it's a movie where like I see the touchstone in terms of like where people progressed uh, f- from it and why it was progressive to some degrees at the time, but also why it's totally backwards and of specific like 1987 in that own way as well. So I... I I, I like aspects of the movie, and I think it, overall I would say I didn't regret entirely my experience watching it, but that one element I think does sour it enough to where it's not at this pinnacle I'd heard about for, for so long. I'm not mad I watched it, but I am disappointed with how a potentially great movie I'd heard so much about kind of has this unfortunate element of it that is not just dated for the time, but also is just a really big, huge story development that feels lazy. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm i never mad that I've watched something I haven't seen. I, I love experiencing new movies. Love them or hate them. It's always exciting for me to watch something I've never seen, something I've never heard of. Like, then this one fits that bill. And part of a genre that I'm not necessarily well-versed in. So it's it's something new for me. It's a new experience in every way. But I will say, I uh, I just was not into this movie from the beginning. Um, I tried and it started getting good. And then obviously the thing we've referenced several times happened and I, I just, it fell off for me. This is um, not one that I, a, I'm never, I'm not going to remember this movie. B it's, it's not one that I honestly don't get really any of the admiration for it. And I think it's sort of, fits perfect in its lost to time uh, role it's taken on. I think it's fine where it is. It should stay there. Yes. And um, we'll talk about another movie very much lost to time in just a moment. <laughs> uh, but first, here's a promo for an ESO she can queue up right after ours. The 42 cast is turning 100, but like all good things, it must come to an end. Tune in to our epic finale as we see who lives, who dies, and who gets their own spinoff. And then come back when the 42 cast is back for season two with even more segments, more guests, and more of explaining why Ryan is wrong. 
It's why we're still the ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. You can only find all this awesome by downloading the 42Cast, a proud member of the ESO Network. And, uh, yeah, let's uh, go ahead and jump into our second film, Real Men. Nick Pirandello, CIA agent. I think I went into the CIA because most other employers have rules against bringing automatic weapons to work. Bob Wilson, insurance agent. I'm thinking about joining a health club, but for now I'm just eating more bran. A couple of real men. Most guys don't stay in the business very long. You know, they get shot, poisoned, they lose interest. I think Russians are people just like us. A little paler, maybe. James Belushi is Nick. John Ritter is Bob. Becoming partners for a dangerous secret mission wasn't their idea. Only the CIA could think of something that stupid. Real men. Coming real soon to a theater real close. So, Real Men came out on... uh... September 25th, 1987, a bit later in the year, from uh, director-writer Dennis Feldman, who uh, did some comedy stuff around this time, like he'd written The Golden Child prior to this. And weirdly, after this movie, um, Shocker, wasn't a success, uh, he moved on to writing weird sci-fi things, like he wrote Species, weirdly. <laughs> and then, he, yeah. and then uh, Virus as well in the 90s. Um, so very... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very, very weird career for him. Um, and uh, if you are probably confused, like, what is this movie? You might have heard of With Nail and I, but you've probably never heard of Real Men to any degree. This was a choice Adam picked and uh, did get released to theaters, though was not very successful at making $873,000 roughly um, at the box office. Uh, but I understand did play a lot on HBO, and I believe that's where you probably saw it, Adam. Oh, countless times. Yeah, why don't you tell people about what the basic premise of Real Men is and uh, what you what you think oh. about it? Oh fuck! <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's an impossible task, but I will accept it. Um, Real Men is basically about uh, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, it stars the not funny Belushi and John Ritter. Turns out that the American government has had dealings with UFO men for a long time. John Ritter plays Joe Schmo, every man, sort of, uh, you know, a uh, suburban dad. And uh, he, he just so happens to look like this lead CIA agent who was dealing with the, the spacemen. Um, so he gets recruited uh, by their top agent, who is the Belushi, to sort of uh, carry on the deal. But it turns out that. Half the agency is against them because they can either get the big gun or the good package from this UFO people. And uh, it's sort of them on a road trip adventure to get to this certain spot at a certain time to meet these uh, aliens to uh, sort of either save the world or destroy it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's roughly right. Um, but... Uh... Yeah, that's, that's, that's not the worst job I could have seen. I would have say of summarizing the movie. Um, but um, why did you choose that, and why did you, why did you think you want to discuss this one? Well, I absolutely loved this movie when I was a child. I thought it was so funny, and I thought it was just one of the coolest things. I thought Belushi as Nick was so funny, and I thought John Ritter was so funny. Which John Ritter 
is funny. I just remember it being crazy and chaotic and not making a lot of sense. And watching it again for this show, which is the first time I've seen it since I was probably a kid, that sort of still holds true. This movie is chaotic and makes no sense. That's still pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And that's why I picked it, because I know nobody has seen this movie. And as soon as I was researching for the show for movies in 1987, I was like, oh, I remember this movie. It has a horrible score. Well, I'm going to pick it then. Yeah, that's and true of like have. both its overall rating and also the movie's like musical score. Well, nah, fuck you. That that lead song slaps, son. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I had no idea what the hell this was. Never heard of this movie. Was not aware of what the hell it was. Not even of the other implications of it, which I definitely stayed away from any kind of plot thing. Because you told me, like, oh, this movie takes really weird turns. So I'm like, okay, I want it to wash over me. And I will agree that it's very crazy, it's very chaotic, and I can enjoy a crazy and chaotic movie. Um, the only trouble is, especially when it's a comedy, it has to have something else. What does that have to have? Laughs, that's it. And I got barely any out of this movie. I think this is a fucking massive failure of a comedy. Um, I really was just sitting there, occasionally puzzled, in an interesting way. It's like, oh, okay, the movie's taking this turn. But also... I laughed maybe twice this whole movie. I can pinpoint two specific times. Um, there's the bit where in the middle of the shootout that happens with all the other agents in John Ritter's neighborhood. And uh, it's mostly just handguns until one guy brings out a bazooka. Which I thought was yep. like a pretty, that's like, oh, that's absurd. It's kind of like fun bit. And then also there's a bit where they have, I, it's a later shootout that happens. And then everything pauses and... John Ritter's like, what's happening? And Jim Belushi says, oh, they, they break for lunch. They're not as dedicated as we are. Yeah. <laughs> that so we was, can walk away? Yeah, let's go. That was another genuinely funny, like, okay, that that worked pretty well. Um, the rest of this movie, I was either aghast or just very unentertained on every level. So it tried to make me laugh. Um, and I think it does have a lot to do with the casting where I agree that I think John Ritter can be quite funny. I've seen him be very funny. And like, obviously some of the old sitcoms and some of the few movie roles he did and stuff like that, that I've seen, I thought he, he's, he's a very funny actor. I just think it's weird casting where on, in theory, like, Oh, Hey, make him sort of like the nebbish everyman character. And I think John Ritter works in that way, but when he has more of like a determined goal and he's also kind of nebbishy and awkward, like on three's company, that's what worked every time is that he'd be in the middle of a situation, but he's like, Oh my God, like, hide the ladies away from Mr. Freely or whoever the fuck. And so I got like, I have this particular goal, but I'm so awkward and flummoxed during all of it. The first half of this movie, he's just flummoxed, but doesn't have any kind of real goal. He's just kind of like stammering around kind of lost. And the second half of the movie, he gains confidence and he has a goal, but also he's not a nebbish. So we're not using the typical John Ritter nebbishness at all. And I just think he kind of feels lost in the middle of it. And then with Jim Belushi, Casting him as a top agent, I guess, is sort of, like, part of the charm. It's like, oh, he's the silly Belushi, but he's, like, a confident, competent agent. Um, he just comes off as just such a fucking unlikable douche to me. And I and I don't disagree with you, and I think that's sort of the point of the Belushi character. I agree with you on the Ritter character, 100%. But I think that's the point of the Belushi character. He's just a fucking douche. Like, he's playing, he's playing John Ritter the whole movie. Uh, he's just, he's some sex-starved maniac. And this is not me defending the movie at all. Don't, don't, don't take it as that. 
but I, I I think I think Belushi actually works kind of well in this movie as Nick, where he's you know supposedly one step ahead of everybody. He's the best agent in the world, but everything that happens to him happens by coincidence. It's just by coincidence that he's you know one step ahead of everybody. He's a bumbling moron. But he's also hyper competent. The movie never really picks a lane. Yeah, he is. Yeah, that's true. That's that's the problem is that he's consistently like hyper confident, but he also wants to have the Belushi kind of like simple charm, which we should we haven't talked much about uh, Jim Belushi. It's interesting because this is a few obviously a few years after his brother passed away, and so everyone was kind of trying to have him take the mantle up of like you can be the new Belushi star, you can do it, especially around this time. This is around like what like K nine and the fucking the taking care of business. And shit like yeah. that, where they're trying so hard to be like, you, you're you a comedy star, and it never really worked for him. You look similar to your brother. You right. kind of sound like him. Right, and they tried to give him vehicles that would have, I'm sure John would have rejected roundly, but Belushi, sure. Jim was just like, sure, I'll take it. I'm, I'm totally on board. And I think that created a lot of animosity against him, and even I, I had that yeah. animosity as well against him for a while. I think as of recent, he's found like the best niche, which is just to be kind of like, an idiotic schlumpish person who means well. And I think that's what has worked as like his portrayal, particularly his best turn ever has been in the recent revival of twin peaks. That third season. He's so fucking funny. So he's so so fucking great in that. But, and even like on Twitter and stuff where now he's just like, Hey, I grew a weed farm. And also uh, you guys watch anime. (laughs) I like anime. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a schlump. He's a weird goofball. Like, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You know, but I got to be honest, rewatching this, I didn't laugh out loud a lot on the rewatch. I, I, I probably smiled a lot more than actually laughing just because I remembered a lot of it. But I do still think it's pretty fucking funny that the CIA's top agents try to hide out in public by dressing as clowns so no one will recognize them. I thought that was funny. I still think it's funny. It's stupid. But if for some reason, I still think it's funny. I, I really just felt nothing for any of that. It, You're just dead inside. Who hurt you, Thomas? Oh, you did by making me watch this movie. No, I just I I did not find that sequence particularly like interesting or funny at all. I, I just think it's like, okay, I, I get the bit that they're dressed up as clowns and that's supposed to be humorous, I guess, and they're just standing out and like that's the joke. It's it's this whole thing of like, oh I get it's a stupid comedy. Um I just think it doesn't. It delivers more on the first half of that than that, the second half of it. That does. That does come late in the movie, so the movie is already worn on you at that point. I understand. Oh, and I, I completely understand. Well, and I think with like my, my biggest trouble is how much the movie, like you're, you're talking about, like oh, Belushi's kind of incompetent and, and like silly with like whatever he's doing, but he's also so competent an agent that like the movie wants to mold John Ritter into that mindset. The whole movie is called Real Men. Because it's like, oh, let's have Belushi turn this, like, you know, um, average schmo who lives in the suburbs into a real man. And a real man means he's, like, confident, but in a way where he's just being an asshole to other people. So it's like, oh, let's turn John Ritter into an asshole. That's, like, what ultimately gives him the self-confidence. Not anything that's, like, kind of fun and gets you invested in their back and forth. But it's like, oh, let's turn him into a quote-unquote real man. Which... Also, really makes this one sequence that also has unfortunate implications to it, but we have okay. to talk about how weird no, no, no. Let's, the let's, sequence let's is. Talk and uh, just like the last movie, just quickly, um, this is going to be a bit of a content warning as well, because we're going to be covering a bit from this movie that has transphobia, also sexual assault 
is implied in this one as well. So just a fair warning to anybody who that might be triggering for. So the, the scene you mentioned earlier where the Russians break for lunch and they leave, which, by the way, also, I, I got to be honest, I did laugh again at that scene because it's preposterous and it's funny. So they end up just walking and, you know, John was like, where are we going? Oh, we're going here. It's my parents' house. And her mom's there. And, you know, the mom tells her, oh, also your aunt, whoever is here. So Belushi leaves the room with his mom to go make sandwiches and well, Ritter stay there. Well, and they, they emphasize that your aunt and also your dad's back from the hospital. Both those things. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So John Ritter stayed in the foyer. This this older woman comes down the stairs, and she instantly throws herself at John Ritter, and uh, to the point to where he's they're on the couch and she's kissing him. Well, then out come Belushi and his mom, and he's like, "Dad!" And it turns out it's his dad who had a sex change. Um, and Ritter is mortified by it. And Jim Belushi goes on a huge thing about like, isn't it so great that they were able to do this for themselves and that he, that I'm so proud of my father for being able to do that. So, uh-huh. there's so many different layers here where Jim Belushi is technically being extremely ahead of his time and being very supportive of his father having this sex change. Yes, incredibly for that particular time. To the point. To where he even says when he decided he wanted to do this, a lot of people were upset, confused. Mom, do you remember how you felt? Like he's even calling his own mother out for it. And we're sorry about like pronoun things here because like they they call him father he a lot despite this. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, right, yeah. right. In the context of the film, yeah. Yes. Let's just remember what dad wants you, and you were against it, but he's happy now. Like this is dad, and you know he's like, look at you, you look great. You know, uh, granted he grabs his breasts he's like look at the tits on him which is in the context of the character i get it he's still like well way to go dad you know what i mean now the thing is i i understand where you're gonna go where john ritter's like mortified yes right yes now think of it this way and i might not change your mind but think of it this way not only was he basically assaulted by somebody right he was initially assaulted, and then he got into it. Another great implication of the scene, yes. But in that context, if you found out this was this guy's father, you'd be like, what? It'd blow your mind, too. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying I, I, I almost understand where he's like, what is going on? Like, I get it. What is going on? I mean, that's a very charitable read of the scene. That I, I get on some level, that's kind of what they're going for. But the main thing is just the transphobic nature of just like, oh my God, can you believe that this guy had a sex change and he was making out with me? I can't believe that. As a straight man, I am so astonished but none by of this. That is, but none of that is said. That's... that's never said. That's never addressed again after the scene. No, it's it's just it's a really cheap laugh that they throw out here. Yeah, right. Yeah, I agree with you, but it but the thing is, it could be. I, I hate to say it this way, but it could be worse. And I've seen it done worse in movies, mm-hmm. to where the very next scene be John Ritter's character throwing up in the toilet or throwing Ace Ventura, for God's sakes. Oh, Ace Ventura is a thousand times worse on like because so, the whole climax hinges on that. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it done way worse. And, and honestly, and I'm, I know it's problematic, but for a movie of this time and for for something like that, I think it's handled actually a lot better than anyone would expect. I mean, that's I think that's part of what my problem is with like the overall context of like what the 
Belushi character is supposed to be because they're so inconsistent about like oh he's an incompetent schlub but also oh he's this character who you're supposed to be endeared to and you're supposed to like Ritter you should change to be more like because this is what a real man is and in theory this would be like the more interesting thing of like oh okay he's a very progressive person and John Ritter could be changing to that but really it's about also becoming an incredibly toxic piece of shit person Jim Belushi honestly is by the end of the movie overall like this is the one sort of interesting progressive moment of his character he's a supportive but even then the whole scene the way it's framed they don't say this directly to you I agree but the filmmaking is entirely implying that Jim Belushi is supposed to be the crazy one in the scenario who's so positive about this and John Ritter is in the right by being disgusted by what's going on here and that's the comedy of the scene. No, you know what? I didn't think about it that way, but that is very accurate. Yeah. That is 100% true. Granted, rewatching it, now the title, Real Men, I understand the flaws and the problems with it. Now, as an adult man watching it. When I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't notice anything. Mm-hmm. So I never thought of any of that. I, I, I honestly thought it was just silly. But yes, I do understand there is a level of sort of... Um, how do I put this toxic masculinity to where it's like, this is what all men should be. You should just negate your feelings, negate, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And just be a man's man. Now that is a problematic thing. I, I don't think I have as many problems with it maybe as I should. And I'm going to go ahead and say that is based solely on nostalgia. Um, yeah. And I think it's kind of what we talked about with the with nail and I thing where I, I get that it's, it's definitely like, it's, it, I'm not expecting this movie to have the exact politics of this, of my time right now. I've seen plenty of movies like a with nail and I and other things where it's like, I see what they're going for, but I think it ultimately doesn't work. And I think in this case, it's, it's kind of like, especially when it becomes the huge thematic thrust of the movie is really about sort of changing John Ritter's character over to being a Belushi and having like this kind of like super hyper-masculine piece of shit um, kind of like tone to much of what he's saying. It makes a scene like the one we're talking about at his parents' house stick out a lot more. Um, I'll say this much, even though I have, it's, it's such a weird scene that has a lot of problematic elements to it. It's the most interesting scene in the movie in that I was like wide awake, like what the fuck is this? Because after that we go on the road trip again and it's a lot more of these same gags where John Ritter's in the dark and he's doing his, you know, this shtick I was talking about where he doesn't have the confidence that eventually gains the confidence but loses the nevishness. And it's not nearly as funny as he usually is. And Belushi still just has, like, also this weird thing where, like, he's becomes attracted to an S&M uh, woman uh-huh. he meets in a bar. And, like, right. that suddenly but- makes him feel a bit more sensitive, which I thought, like, oh, is this going to be, like, an interesting term where, like, they kind of switch roles? I think it's what they're kind of going for. But then by the end of the movie, he's still just kind of the same dude. It doesn't matter. In whole, I agree with that. The only, the only thing that I don't know that John Ritter necessarily, he, he kind of does become the blue character because a lot of the taglines, like I want to make a big thing out of it or whatever. But it's also very clearly shown that he does not know how to sort of defend his family and sort of stand up for what's right or anything. So he does kind of gain the confidence through shitty means. but. Again, I'm also trying to dissect real men. I don't think I have that many problems with it on a thematic level as far as sort of the messages they are trying to be conveyed. More or less than I do on a, just it's not that funny. Like, it's not that funny. There's a lot of jokes that really don't land. Even silly, slapsticky jokes 
don't land. Yeah, I'll put it this way, that, like, I don't think I would be analyzing it as much as I am if I wasn't being distracted by at least, like, some of the jokes. I think that's the thing, is when I'm watching, especially a comedy of this time, and I'm not being entertained with the laughs, it's like, well, I gotta entertain my mind somehow. Let's look at what this is kind of doing on sort of a thematic level, putting it in its place in time, makes the mind whirl on that instead of, I don't know, laughing at John Ritter saying, that was my seat, get out of here. And also, for some reason, wearing that fucking black shirt that comes out of nowhere. Like, there's just a scene where he's changed outfits, and there's no reference to it at all. No, yeah, he's wearing a weird cowboy shirt. Right. I'm sure that was a deleted scene that happened in, like, the middle of this fucking movie that just, like, got excised where he changed his fucking outfit to that weird an outfit. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think there is sort of a lot of, like I said, toxic masculinity in this film. But I do think that also runs rampant in a lot of 80s and 90s films. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could rattle off I don't know how many that the whole movie's like, just be a man. You know, that's what it was. Be macho. I mean, it happened nonstop. Like I said, for it to be a comedy, which, by the way, it, it is wacky. There's a lot of crazy shit in this movie. with The pen and the glass and the water in the tree and, you know, John, John Ritter with the bang, bang, bang. Like, that's it's silly, dude. It's fucking silly. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, none of it really lands the way I, I kind of hoped it would from when I was a kid. Right. Because when I was a kid, I fucking thought it was hilarious. Now I'm like, oh, that just goes to show what my sense of humor was as a child. It also goes to show, I think, that why Dennis Feldman only made one movie. Because I think it's also just, on like, comedy, you want to, like, a lot of people would assume, oh, it's just kind of like on a factory, anybody can, like, put this out. Comedy is super hard to stage and to make, actually, like, really funny on a visual level, especially a movie like this. It's doing, say, like, the shootout scene with, like, the whole, in theory, like, oh, Belushi is shooting off the gun and John Ritter thinks he's able to like use his finger as a gun suddenly it's like magically working for him that's what the scene's going for I could see a version of that scene being very funny as opposed to in this movie it is so poorly like set up and staged and everything the joke isn't landing in any way well I I definitely agree with you I think comedy is the hardest thing to land Mm -hmm. it's easier to shock somebody or startle somebody you know in, in horror films or whatever or to make somebody feel pray with play with their emotions and be emotionally manipulative and drama like bad dramas and make them feel something even though like it's garbage than it is to make someone genuinely laugh and connect with something that's funny. And this movie does try. It really tries. But it is definitely as I watch it as an adult, it is definitely immature humor that I get why I thought it was funny as I kid. I really do get it. Um, as an adult, no. Not, basically, 90% of the jokes don't land for me now. Yeah. Um, I'm not against immature humor. Like, we make stupid immature jokes here all the time, and, like, there can be, like, well, a... Well, a f- speak for yourself, buddy. No, that's... I'm sorry. You're the more highfalutin one that does, like, a very witty repartee the, the entire I'm like semester. Richard... I'm like a Richard Belzer to your... to your Dane Cook. All right, buddy. You know, I was fine here, and then you had to, like, insult me on a personal level. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. How fucking dare you do that to me? Yeah, I apologize. I have respect for myself. See, unlike John Ritter, I can do that. 
I can be respect, like respect myself. It's like, fuck you, buddy. How dare you do that to me? And I'm not going to be an asshole. Like, uh, I'm going to be a toxic piece of shit asshole about it either. Um, but but are, yeah. are you trying to say I'll be a toxic asshole? No, I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm not oh. being like John Ritter becomes at the end of the movie. Oh, I was going to say, Jesus Christ, man. See, Just and there's up. the importance of being able to set up a joke correctly. Because <laughs> if you don't, it comes off pretty stupid. I proved my point. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, see, we have our fun. We're friends now, guys. We're friends. Yeah. We're friends. <laughs> um, you know what? I guess let's get into final thoughts about real men then. Because um, we've gone on quite a long time. <laughs> About both these movies. Way longer than I thought. Yeah, way longer. Quite longer, yes. So, uh, uh, Adam, go ahead and to some final thoughts that aren't just I loved it as a kid, nostalgic love, if you can master anything else. Well, I mean, unfortunately, not much. I, uh, like I said, I still smile a lot. I smiled a lot while watching it just because it, it took me back to a place when I first saw it. Um, taking that aside, watching it, like hypothetically, if I watch it for the first time today, it's not funny. There, There's a couple slapsticky moments that might work like i said the break for lunch thing is probably the best joke in the movie it's absurd the whole story is just nonsensical bullshit this is a definition of like we said with the last movie this movie fits directly in this time and it should stay there yeah um i i think just to to really emphasize like my sort of issue with some of the more problematic elements of the movie are definitely um, just a case of, like, me just trying to find anything to, like, really be at all, like, to pontificate at all about on this show. Because if that scene wasn't even in this movie, I would just be saying, like, oh, this is just not funny. And that would be the the worst podcast where it's just like, I think this is funny. I don't think it's funny. Like, there's nothing to say <laughs> about that on much of any level. And I'm also just, that's why I'm going into, like, some of the issues about, like, oh, I think it's directed poorly, it's miscast. I was thinking, by the way, I think more than a Belushi, the kind of person who would fit, maybe roll like this perfectly, and make, wouldn't make it come off as, like, as sleazy as I think it is, would be, like, a Michael Keaton. Yeah, even, like, a Bill Murray. Perfect Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd movie. Yeah, honestly, I think that's what they're really going for. Um, and as it stands, I think that Belushi's very miscast. Um, I think that Ritter is, you know, I think trying to do his shtick, but it's just weirdly stretched and separated in a way that I think is the problem with, like, the script, which has a lot of weird thematic elements that I'm not sure what it's quite going for. And then even when it goes for the silliness, I think the direction just kind of makes all uh, the sillier elements that I could see working with a different person behind the camera or even writing it in practice it ultimately comes off it's just like oh yeah i kind of get what this is forgotten because it's not really that funny a movie um i've seen a lot of people do like this movie that has sort of a weird cult around it and if you like yeah. it still i mean you know I'll, I'll power to you for you know like what you like um i just have you know a lot of um issues with some of the stuff that it's trying to portray this broke my heart like honestly are we visiting it? Oh. i remember yeah, it really did, because I remember uh, fondly this movie. I, I loved this movie, and rewatching, I'm like, oh, no. So, yeah, this is definitely one of the ones that I, I've done for the show that I, I remember loving that has not held up. This is definitely probably the top one. I've had that happen sometimes with the show, and it's always a bummer when that does happen. Um, but also, at the same time, we can progress and grow from it, and even, you know, you, know, you can even be... I would argue so charitable to 
certain scenes in this movie that it feels like you've opened a new wing of a charity just to be charitable to it. Yeah. But also, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I agree where we're covering two movies that fit very much in their specific time and place. And, uh, I think that may be made for an interesting look back in 1987 for all of the bad and a few occasional good things, but mostly bad. I agree. That's the end of our very heavy discussions of these two on a very special episode of Double wow. Double Bill. I mean, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we got some fucking themes with these movies I did not expect, but you know what? It was awesome. Right. And by the way, if you're also a member of, say, the LGBT community and you heard us talk about this, um, we're sorry if we got maybe some things a bit off. We're two white straight guys, so um, please write to us. Uh, double edge, double bill at gmail.com. If, if you have any sort of uh, comments on how we discussed it or how maybe the films portrayed any of these elements, we'd love to hear you. Yes, definitely. But let's go ahead and get into some uh, feedback of our own because uh, along with at double edge, double bill at gmail.com, uh, you can also send feedback to us over on our Facebook and Twitter page at DEDBpod where we've asked you, hey, what are your favorite least favorite movies we'd whatever topic we're doing? And in this case with uh, 1987, we had a couple people share some thoughts including uh james rodriguez who says what a year for film 1987 it gave us evil dead 2 robocop near dark a nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors raising arizona hellraiser the witches of eastwick and slumber party massacre 2 it also gave us three men and a baby which really didn't need a drug subplot and then christian alvarez says 1987 had a bunch of great movies especially some great horror movies uh some bad movies include from a whisper to a scream ishtar jaws the revenge Masters of the Universe, and a couple Guilty Pleasures with the Garbage Pail Kids movie and Superman 4 The Quest for Peace. Uh, some favorites are Evil Dead 2, The Gate, Good Morning Vietnam, Hellraiser, La Bamba, The Lost Boys, The Monster Squad, Near Dark, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Plane Trains and Automobiles, Predator, The Princess Bride, Raising Arizona, RoboCop, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, Four. Slumber, Party Massacre 2, Spaceballs and the Untouchables, uh, also, I just want to say, love the George Lucas episode. Glad to hear you guys talking about American Graffiti, which is one of my favorite movies, and Howard the Duck, which, while it isn't great, is at least very interesting. Right on. So, normally, this would be the point where Tom's would say, oh, do you got any other films to mention for this uh, year? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> they were all pretty much mentioned here, that's true. <laughs> you kind of covered it all, which, hey, that's good, though. I'll take it. <laughs> hey, Angel Heart. Yeah, that Angel one Heart wasn't mentioned. I, I think that one's really great. I, I can I concur with that. Um, it's got a very obvious twist to it. If you're if you're watching the movie, you're like, is this what the twist is? Yes, it is. That's what the twist yes, is. Yes, it is. <laughs> the first thing you think of, that's it. <laughs> yep. It works. I argue that is one of the most telegraphed twists that still works. Yeah, but it's still really, really engrossing good sort of like um it has something it's like fantasy but also noir and horror and it's it's sort of a genre bending movie and you know i just want to i do want to mention there's a few others some scant few that i can mention here um that weren't put out on front street by uh, everybody here um broadcast news wasn't mentioned i love that movie um, that's it's a good movie. Oh, I fucking love that movie so much. My probably the best James L. Brooks movie. I just love. Uh, it's it's probably my favorite William Hurt performance. We've talked about William Hurt plenty of times. He's basically a himbo in that movie in a way that's really endearing to me. He's it's one, of, and also obviously Holly Hunter's so great. And Albert Brooks. 
I love me some, like, Nebuchadnezzar ne- ne- Albert Brooks, and it's so good. But also, um, I, I want to put a shout-out, we talked about some horror sequels that were here. Uh, shout-out to um, Prom Night 2, or it's Hello, Mary Hello, Lou, Prom Night Mary 2. Mary Lou, yeah, man. Which, especially because the original Prom Night, um, I'm not a big fan of. It's one of those post-Halloween slashers that's just really dull to me. It's just like, yeah, I get it. We're kind of doing yeah. the regular thing here. And then I'd heard Prom Night 2 was so great. I'm like, okay, let's see how this is. Oh, this movie's wacky and weird. This is fun. Oh, it's off the rails. Yeah, it's <laughs> off the rails. It's a great movie. Uh, another good horror movie I want to throw out from 87 is The Hidden. The Hidden's awesome. It's so good. And then I also, I mentioned it actually on our George Lucas episode, but my favorite Hughes movie uh, came out in 87, which is uh, Some Kind of Wonderful, other than Plain Trades and Automobiles, but Some Kind of Wonderful. I will say, I think there's so much about that movie that's great, um, particularly, I love Mary Stuart Masterson in that movie. Oh, she's so good. She's so fun. Obviously, Leah Thompson, who was the sort of reference point, or even Elias Coteus. I never even realized that was him until I rewatched it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's why I've always loved Elias Codius. I thought it was because he played Casey Jones. No, I saw some kind He's of... He's kind of also prototype Casey Jones in that movie, which is a lot No, yeah, 100%. Um, I will say, though, the thing that just kind of, like, slightly hurts it for me, it's not just the actor, but also, I'm not a big fan of the main character as played by Eric Stoltz. I think it's, like, such a... I know he's such a dick wet blanket for the movie and it's like oh should I be with Mary Stuart Masterson or Leah Thompson it's just like oh the fucking smallest violin for you dude I'm so sad for you (laughs) yeah I got (laughs) Robert oh man yeah it's it's a lot of that but no it's it's, it's still I would say I agree it's a it's pretty fun underrated Hughes movie in particular Lethal Weapon as well right or even Beverly Hills Cop 2 which we've mentioned is like one of the big hits of the year I personally prefer that a bit more to Beverly Hills Cop 1 it's got that Tony Scott action that I did Um, and you know what one that I just wanted just from my childhood a weird kids movie in this vein um, The Brave Little Toaster Little Jacket oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) when I was a little kid just like oh do you lose dog shit that high um (laughs) Are they, are they got bars of soaps in their pillowcases? That's a waste of soap. <laughs> I mean, for the record, um, it's, 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 that's a great movie. But at the same time, uh, yeah. Brave Little Toaster as a kid was very uh, traumatizing. But also, I, I have a lot of... So I really yeah. have fond memories of that movie. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But I remember really liking that movie. I watched it, like, late in high school again, and I was just like, oh, this is so cute. It's not the greatest movie. Uh, but it feels also interesting, because that was originally pitched by, unfortunately, I have to mention him, John Lasseter. He wanted to do that as, like, an early CG movie for, like, Disney Animation proper. And they were like, no, let's we can't do that. It's like, fine, I guess we'll just do it as, like, some secondary animation studio thing. But one day, I'll make a CG thing about sentient objects. And he did. Yeah, he did. He definitely did that. Yes. But what about maybe some bad ones, Adam? Oh, man. Uh, first one pops in the head is Steel Dawn with Patrick Swayze. <laughs> I, I, have you ever seen, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? I've heard about this. I have not seen it. it it's it's uh, it's not good. Yeah. Um, Cherry 2000. Uh, also, not good. No Don't idea know what that, that is. is. No idea what that is. Oh, it, it's it's something. Even though I know it's not good, but I like Bad Taste, the Peter Jackson movie. I like Bad Taste. Uh, I recently rewatched that. I think that's interesting just on like, oh, wow, this is a scrap, scrappy little movie that's able to do so much weird, especially like gory 
and like special effects stuff that's pretty phenomenal. Superman Four: The Quest for Peace also came out in 1987, and the only other two I even want to mention is. Uh, a return to Salem's Lot. Right. Weirdly, oh. a theatrically released sequel, sequel to a miniseries. To a television <laughs> miniseries. Also from like eight years prior. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And over the top with Sylvester Yeah, Stallone. over the top. <laughs> yeah. Not a good movie. Terrible father has to fight for his son by doing arm wrestling. <laughs> to win a truck as well. Yes. I mean, yeah. in terms of some of the bad ones, I think I have an example kind of like a real men for me where I really loved it as a kid and then I went back to it was like, oh, wow, no, this this is very uneven, to say the least. Is the, the sketch movie Amazon Women on the Moon? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. There's, I, I mean, I, oh, oh. I would say there's a <laughs> lot of, like, bad shit in it, but also at the same time, some of the sketches, particularly... I love the bullshit or not, which was a parody of like unsolved mysteries, which is like stupid to like was Jack the Ripper the Loch Ness monster and they build a giant fucking Loch Ness monster. <laughs> it's just like there's there's some fun or even like the actual parody of the Amazon Women on the Moon is a great sort of parody of like Forbidden Planet and other like fifty sci-fi movies like that. Some like jo- Joe Dante, John Lane is participating. There's some stuff that's really terrible, but there's also a few you bits know- that are fun. Another one that I really liked, it was a sequel to a movie I still actually like, but I really loved the sequel when I was a kid, and I've watched it recently, it's awful, is uh, the Jason Bateman starring Teen Wolf 2. Oof. I thought it was great when I was a kid. It is atrocious. Yeah, I would figure. I I, I watched even Teen Wolf recently, that's not from 87, but I don't even think that holds up very well either. Oh, it probably doesn't. I, I haven't know. seen it forever. <laughs> but 87 also gave us uh, Timothy Dalton's Bond in The Living Daylights. Right, which I would argue is the better of his two movies. I, I actually kind of like both his movies. I thought I think Dalton's an underrated Bond. I think Dalton is the sad tragedy of, I think, of great Bond trapped in not great Bond movies. I think even Living Daylights I, I like. Um, I think License to Go just has the problem like, oh, this is just like a Miami Vice episode featuring James Bond. Yeah, pretty the, the, yeah, I, I guess I can't argue with that. Uh, you know, another one I want to throw out there uh, that I really love is the original The Stepfather. That's one I haven't seen. Oh. The, the original Stepfather. Um, it's one of my favorite, even though they did do two sequels, uh, second one starring the same actor and the third one, not at all, which I think might have been a made-for-TV sequel. Mm-hmm. The first Stepfather is so good. Terry Terry Quinn is terrifying in it. I, I I cannot stress enough how good the stepfather is. And unfortunately, it got sort of lost in that era where, I mean, there were so many slasher movies coming out and horror films. And the stepfather, unfortunately, not only did it get lost, but it also got saddled with that piss poor remake. So nobody even bothered to give it the original attention. I think the, the original is such a good more a thriller than a horror movie it's really really phenomenal real quick before we do have to kind of move on to the close of the show i didn't want to say one um just i think my not a good movie but probably the one of the best titles in cinematic history came out in 87 of house to the second story yes not a good movie brilliant title one of the best titles of all time (laughs) yeah it's 
brilliant. I like saw that title in like I think the Leonard Maltin review book I had as a kid, and I was like, "This is the most amazing title for a movie I've ever seen." You watch the movie. Oh, this is just—it's weird, but it's just not good. I wanted to also say one that it was mentioned a couple times, and I remember not liking this movie. And I actually rewatched it shortly before we recorded earlier today. Ishtar isn't that bad. I'm gonna say it. And that was going to be one of my alternate choices for the bad originally, because I've never seen it. Um, I just know it's it's a huge flop, but I haven't seen it. I think that's the thing. It got so. sort of the, the reputation of being a huge flop, and also Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman starred in it. I watched it because I'm going through Elaine May's movies, and I would say that's the one that put her in, like, director jail. She never made another movie after that, which I think is unfair, because, like, it lost money, sure, but plenty of other, like, male directors have been able to, like, recover from flops and do other bullshit. Like, even Warren Beatty has managed to do that before. I, I also think, like, it's not that terrible a movie. It's, it's not the funniest movie. I think it's definitely too long and has a lot of problems with it. But I, I kind of have fun, especially with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty singing terrible songs together. There's a lot of, like, really funny, terrible songs in that movie. It's fine. I don't get it. It's like, it's not one of the worst movies ever made. You've seen it. Is it a movie I would like? I think you'd probably be in a similar camp to me where you wouldn't, like, love it. But you'd be like, oh, that was fine. I don't get why everybody hates it so much. But yeah, well, thank you all for uh, submitting the feedback and uh, listening. And uh, also, we want to thank some other people. I want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thank you to our loyal Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get to vote in polls for either movies we cover or topics we cover, like 1987. And you also get to listen to bonus material. And oh, this week, if you're a patron, you're in for some goodies. Gotta tell you that, because we, yeah. before this would have posted, we would have released the On the Edge of Relevance, where we talk about the recent Mortal Kombat, that's on HBO Max, just hit over the weekend, you get to hear us talk about that, and shortly after this comes out, we'll also be releasing our bonus episode, where we talk about WandaVision, the Disney Plus show. Yeah, man, we marathoned through that shit, for you people behind the scenes, uh, tonight. Yes. We recorded three podcasts tonight this is at the end of like about a four-hour podcasting session <laughs> yeah yeah and but uh hey i just want to say to all our patrons fans of the show people have guessed it uh you know i i might shit talk all of you a lot and i i do mean it every time i do <laughs> but i also want to say that uh i i i genuinely do appreciate and love the support that you give our show both of us personally and everything else uh we wouldn't do this especially for as long as we've been doing it already uh, without you guys. I mean, we, we're going almost on three years, and that's kind of a big deal, for, especially for podcasts. There's hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. A lot of them don't make it to a year, and we're still going because we genuinely love doing it, and we love the feedback. So thank you for all of that. Yes, thank you all very much for that. We, of course, appreciate that. And you can send us more feedback. Uh, as I mentioned over on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And also you can email us doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And, uh, you know, if you can't support us on the Patreon monthly, why not buy some merchandise with our logo on it over on the Public ESO store? You can uh, go ahead and buy, you know, a cup or a t-shirt or a tote bag or anything else like that with our logo on it. So you can buy our merch! Buy our merch! Oh, you fucker, you stole the one thing I get to do on this show. That you complained about <laughs> for the last, like, three weeks that you didn't want to keep doing it. Buy our merch! 
buy our merch. See, See I'm that? still better. I still own it. I still got it. That's how I get the spark back into him, folks. That's how I did it. You really did. Thank yeah. you so much. Now I really want to do this for another three years. Hooray! <laughs> and uh, for more of my own individual antics, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. Um, I also do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and Film-Cred.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. Uh, same on both. Uh, just if you want to follow me, cool. If not, that's fine too. But if you want me to share some of your stuff, I'm more than willing to do it. Um, and I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. I know it's not the same. I could probably make that happen to where it's all the same, but I'm not going to spring for the pro account. But it's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N on Letterboxd. I'm kind of getting more in-depth at actually doing reviews now, which I mm-hmm. never did before. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to follow me on there, please go ahead. I'd love to read your reviews, and I'd love to follow you back. For more of our antics, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows out there? And uh, you can also dig into the archives for shows we did even before we joined ESO over on our Podbean main feed. And nothing else, if you can't, you know, support the show via Patreon or buy any of the merch on the ESO Public store, a great way to help that's completely free is to rate, review, or share the show around to give us just a bit more visibility and get other people listening to the show. We'd appreciate it if you did. Hook us up. We'll hook you up. Sugar high. Watermelon sugar high. Isn't that a thing? Isn't that a thing? The, the, the kid from the One Direction. You seen this? You heard about this? The... <laughs> what is that? That Dufador? I think that's a four-card engine. <laughs> oh, Adam, we have to end this episode. And uh, yeah. the way we're going to end that is doing our picking for next week, which, you know, uh, the summer season starting, we're actually going to start getting movies in theaters again soon. And it's going to be including big blockbusters, finally. But we decided, you know what, let's do some low-budget films. Which we want to emphasize, for this, we decided on low-budget, meaning $2 million or less as a budget. Which, uh, there's a lot of fun cinema that doesn't have a lot of the flash and bang of these big-budget movies. Yeah, and you know what, dude? The thing is, there are so many underseen, undersung gems of cinema that are low budget. It's just, this is so exciting for me that we're doing this. All right. Well, you have the good picks, so I can see why you're excited and you've assigned them between one and 10 for both of those. I've done the same for my bad picks and, uh, you know, we're each going to pick a number between one and 10 and whatever that gets closest to amongst the ones you've assigned the numbers and the same for mine. Uh, that ends up being the good and bad film we cover. So for your two good picks, Adam, you know, I'm going to stick with the low budget angle of it. I'm going to go with number two. Okay, at number two is actually the higher budget of the two I chose. At number two, with a budget of $1.5 million. It's a newer movie that I know you love that I haven't seen yet. It's PG Psycho Gore Man. Yeah! Yeah, buddy. I know. I, I've been wanting to see it. I haven't watched it because I knew we were, we were going to hit it sometime. Uh, at number nine, at a budget of $60,000, I had Turbo Kid. That's one I haven't seen. Oh, good movie. Oh, fuck. All right. Oh, bad, low budget. Jesus Christ. It's an infinite wealth of shit. Yes. Um, all right, I'll go... You. Uh, all right, I'll go number 10. Oh, boy. I'm so excited, Adam. This is a movie I've been waiting to find an excuse to talk about on the show. From auteur, right. filmmaker, 
Neil Breen, at number nine, God. I have Fateful Findings. You're goddamn right we're covering a Neil Breen movie, finally. I knew it was coming. Oh, I didn't expect, I, for some reason, I never pegged it for this episode, but I knew you were dying to talk about Neil Breen. Yep. Uh, okay. And you, and you don't know you don't know who Neil Breen really is, right? You have not seen any of his films. No, I just from talking to you and doing a little bit of Wikipedia shit, but no, not really. Oh, I'm so excited. All right. To open the corner of cinema to you, <laughs> of Neil Breen. Oh, well, at uh, number three, I had a movie. This might be a hot take choice, um, but a movie that got a lot of praise at the time that I've seen recently, and I was not a fan of Primer. I really liked it when I first saw it, but I agree. It's a very confusing movie. I wouldn't say it's a very good movie. So we have Psycho Gorman and a Neil Breen movie. Oh, I mean, Psycho Gorman, to be fair, could also describe a Neil Breen movie to some extent, which we'll talk all about that next time. Uh, But until then, everybody, it's time to, you know, lay back in your easy chair and uh, drink some heavy booze. If you're of age. Peace out. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.